Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Incomparable, number 660, April 2023. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and it's another edition of Old Movie Club. In this episode, we discuss legal films from 1957. (laughs) In this case, Witness for the Prosecution, directed by Billy Wilder, and 12 Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, Joining me uh, to talk about these movies, as always, the selector of the films, Mr. Philip Michaels. Hello. Hello, I'm here against the objections of my nurse, but uh, Do you have fortunately, some cocoa? I have my cigars stuffed. I have some cigars stuffed into my microphone, so it's uh, okay. all right. I hope you have your your uh, your flask of cocoa with you to drink during. No, the just the bourbon. Just the bourbon. Okay, <laughs> you were going to call it cocoa. Uh, all right, and also joining us to talk about old movies as they often do. Uh, first, Shelley Brisbane, uh, host of Lions Towers and Shields on this very network, which is all about old movies. Hi, Shelley. Hello, damn, 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 in a German accent that I'm not going to do for you. Uh, also, I don't know how, who who let a woman onto a podcast about 12 Angry Men. Weird. Does I know. Not- I feel uncomfortable. Yes, she's the, <laughs> the, the angriest man of them I'm all. I'm wearing a tie right now. I have a tie on. That's, that's good. Woman, the angriest man of them all. I like <laughs> it. Uh, Dr. Drang <laughs> is also here to talk about old movies, as often happens. Hello. Hey, I'm grateful to be here. But one can get very tired of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, first time on the mothership, although he's been on Shelley's podcast a lot, and uh, continuing my edition of everybody I knew in college being on an episode of The Incomparable. Eventually, it is my old pal Randy Detinga. Hi, Randy. Well, I just realized that Charles Lawton uh, in this performance is actually just a couple years older than me, and. I'm going to have to get some pills to put under my tongue just to deal with this fact. Yeah, I, I think that's I think we all may need to deal with that fact. We all may need to drink some cocoa um, and uh, ride up and down our little uh, <laughs> our little lift. Up that's the how staircase. I got upstairs tonight. Yeah, you just zip right on up there or go up and down for fun, as as the case Whee! may be. Well, we should start with Witness for the Prosecution. Also, by the way, for those who don't know Old Movie Club, the whole premise is basically it's movies. I, my knowledge of old movies isn't zero. And so I, I asked my pal Phil to start picking movies for me to watch. And I will just say, Phil, haven't seen either of these before. So thank you. Well done. Well, well there well, there you go. I had a big hole in my 1957 legal drama uh, <laughs> category, and now it is, it's got two films in it. Um, so we'll begin with Witness for the Prosecution, based on the stage play by Agatha Christie herself, in which a... based on based on the short based on the stage play based on the short story, I we, uh, we, yes. we should say. Fair enough, mm-hmm. fair enough. And we uh we should also say 
It's a movie star directed by famous director Billy Wilder, starring Tyrone Power as a um, guy with an American accent who lives in London and worked for the RAF, and at one point actually refers to coming home to England. That is never explained. Uh, anyway, he's no. accused of murder. Accents are key in this movie. <laughs> I. I- I, I I think it's explained that we we need a big name to be uh, uh, appear in this movie. So Tyrone Power is it. Sure, and we'll have him just use. We'll have him say British expressions that will that will trip off his tongue like like a guy stumbling down the stairs who should have used his his little lift to get up the stairs. But yeah, it's uh it's it's an interesting casting decision. Well, also, you could insert a line that says, well. You know, my parents were English, but I I went to I grew up in America, and then and so I've got the accent or something, and that would be all you'd and, need. And, <laughs> and in, indeed, um, in preparation for this, I was going on YouTube to watch things, and I stumbled across a 1970s um, uh, remake of this for for TV with Ralph Richardson in the Charles Lawton role, and a young Bo Bridges played Leonard Vole in that, and they they actually say, yeah, I'm an American here, living in, in England, and I was uh. over here to fight for America in the war, and it, they, they explain why he has his oh. goofy American accent. But that would require character development, which Tyrone Power does not get until much later in the film. Billy, Billy Wilder doesn't care. Well, you see, Shelley, the, the, the trick with movies with twists... Is oh, that... oh, Jason's going to explain movies with twists to me now. Okay, no, all I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to explain ahead. that the trick, the trick, the trick with them is, uh, it it means you have to not have characters with character development right. for a while That's because how that the, works. the important thing is to just withhold information. That's the mm. most important thing in a movie. Right. It, information for the plot. I, I, Phil. Wait, before we get to it, Phil, why'd you choose this movie? Why did I choose this movie? Well, because I really wanted to watch 12 Angry Men, and I was trying to think of something that might happen. And, and, and this, the, 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 this one's okay. This one's it's okay. Fine. It's, I object. This is fantastic. Yeah. This is a great no, movie. No, I... I I, I enjoy, there are th- elements of this movie I enjoy. I'm always up for a Billy Wilder picture that's a lot like an Alfred Hitchcock picture. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, Charles Lawton and El- Elsa Lancaster have some good uh, uh, oh, yes. uh, back and forth. So, so uh, uh, l- uh, let's ignore the fact that Tyrone Power is, uh, is the lead in this movie. And also Tyrone Power. And he's swe- he, he yes. sweaty. They spray him with the uh, sweaty stuff on it. I, I really did like oh, this movie. Oh, man. He, he, so much sweat. I like this movie, uh-huh. but what, what I, I do. I, I, li- I like it fine. But... What, and maybe this goes to Agatha Christie, uh, architect of various series of mysteries with cast of characters around a, a, a central figure. But this kind of feels like the latest episode in the in the what is it Wilfred Robarts it's the it's the it's the Charles Lawton yeah. Chronicles that it's like it's really Lawton of the Bailey he's Lawton of the Bailey yeah he is he is yeah 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 exactly just, right? just one more thing he, just he, just one more he's the center of it and he's got yeah. his wacky cast around him and he's got the police guy he knows and all of that and like Tyrone Power he's the he's the guest star of the week uh you know Marlena Dietrich big guest star of the week but it's the Charles Lawton show and this is an episode from it and he's great i mean the shorthand like we get him immediately uh he spends the whole movie yeah catching cigars that he's not supposed to smoke anymore because he just had a heart attack and having his uh his nurse like yell at him in open court 
well, with loud whisper to take his pills and he's got his cocoa next to him that's that's not cocoa um but but uh in fact oh what is it it's uh it's brandy, not it's, it's brandy. brandy it's brandy yeah it's brandy. so that's the stuff i that's the stuff i loved i did get the sneaking suspicion because why would you do this movie otherwise that there would be a twist at the end however i do have to hand it to the movie there are two so good good job movie um but but really for me the delight is not Tyron Power. Marlena Dietrich's interesting, although weird. Uh, but Charles Lawton yeah. and company are uh are just a lot of fun. It's just a very fun romp with the 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 defense attorney who <laughs> we see why he's in such ill health, because he doesn't care about his health. He's care he cares no. about his cases. And I believe I believe that's a Billy Wilder invention. I I think the source material made it more of the uh, story of the Leonard Vole and wife uh, uh, relationship, and that the uh, uh, defense minister was the defense attorney was it was you know a secondary character. Um, in fact, I believe the story is told from the the uh, uh, point of view of the solicitor Mayhew. So um, yeah. I, I think Billy Wilder, when writing the script, sat down and said. I think the winning play is to focus on the uh, the uh, decrepit attorney yeah. here, and uh, well, and, good uh, instincts, yeah, uh -huh. and go with that guy. No, he's great. He's absolutely great. Um, I, I I also didn't watch this movie before today. I'm just gonna say it. Spent a little time uh, pausing the movie at one point to say. Who plays the weird lady with the letters? Who, who is that? Who is that? Only to only to realize at the end, oh, it was Marlena Dietrich playing actually her character dressed up as another character. But the reason I was trying to look up who it was is who thought that this was an acceptable accent in a movie theor <laughs> theoretically made in England or at least cast with English actors because they, they say at the end, they're like, oh, that woman with the Cockney accent. And I'm like, no, sir. No, I review you. That was she, the words were Cockney, but the accent was very not yeah. Cockney or anything um, found in England. Apparently, coached would you, by Noel. Would you like these letters, Ducky? Apples and pears, my Letters. I had letters. That was more the accent. Yeah. Appar <laughs> apparently, coached by Noel Coward. And not well. End, not well. No. And apparently, at the end, he said, "Well, you know, you work with what you yeah. got." So. And it looked like those were dubbed too. I just it didn't did. feel like that. Yeah, yeah. It was live. It, it yeah. Did. That's that's actually Randy. I started to think maybe this person isn't credited because it's one actress and then they redubbed her with a different actress because it doesn't sound and I wonder if she was so bad with her accent on set that they tried to fix it by having her loop her dialogue and it, it didn't regardless, it didn't work. Uh it, I didn't notice that it was Marlena Dietrich. I'll give them that. I totally will give them that. But uh, I didn't know, like, again, saying all the words of a Cockney, a Cockney would say. But, like, people make a big deal about Dick Van Dyke uh, and his uh, Mary Poppins accent. Not enough of a deal is made about Marlena Dietrich. I guess spoilers for uh, yeah for, for Witness for the Prosecution might have held that back. But, man, it's not good. I you were told at the end of the movie, Jason, do not spoil it for people who have not seen it. <laughs> at the, at the yeah, request of this theater. Don't yeah. spoil it for people 65 years later. How dare you? Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> that's, that's I, right. I'm, I'm expecting the uh, witness for the prosecution police to burst in and mm -hmm. shut this down. Same. Like, They're downstairs. Yeah. They're coming up the stairs right now. In fact. I was just wondering what someone who was not familiar with 
Marlena Dietrich would think of her because if they're not familiar with her or with Madeline Kahn being her, mm-hmm. like what what would you think of this this actress? Well, I can tell you, Randy. <laughs> oh, I don't think I've seen her in anything. <laughs> really? really? Oh, yeah. oh, interesting. But I not know even, not I, even Madeline Kahn doing her. And I, well, that doesn't I have, count. I, I have seen that. Um, okay, but I know of her, right? And so as I watch the movie, I'm th- I'm I'm evaluating her. And and they're like there are moments like there's that flashback to the uh to, to the world's I guess world's worst accordion concert that happens and <laughs> it, it's she's dressed scantily on the sign nope she's wearing pants and playing the accordion and that's what you guys are gonna get which almost starts a riot but like there are some moments in 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 there with her kind of weirdly transactional romance uh, initiation with Tyrone Power. And there are, there's a, a couple of moments, especially like at the end when she's putting on her lipstick and explaining everything to Charles Lawton that I was like, okay, like I, I really see the charisma, but there are, but like when she is the, and in that weird scene where she's talking to them in the attorney's office, where she leaves and they're all looking at each other, like something really strange is going on here. Right? Like they know something is not right that that was a weird uncanny scene but like her big moments on the on the stand in the trial it's like it would didn't like it was like she was reading for from cue cards or something it felt like there was zero charisma and maybe that was the choice was that this is her moment of i don't know to to recite what she's supposed to recite and all of that so i was a little bit baffled but i can kind of see it that said if i didn't know anything about marlena dietrich's reputation I didn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, probably have thought anything of it, but I was trying to analyze her. I did like that her, she's she's singing a Diblawa lantern or something like that, which I assume is a Blue Angel reference that's being made, the name of the yeah. club that she's in in Germany, but I don't know. That so was I, I have to weird. jump in here that, to say that her, the flashback to when she's in Germany, it actually is reminiscent of a, mo- reminiscent of a movie, it was from like 46 or 47 called A Foreign Affair, where she's like this woman who's involved with a GI and you don't know whether she's a good person or a bad person or anyway. So, and I feel like this is only 10 years after that movie was made and Dietrich was enough of a thing that that might've been reminiscent for people. And even if it wasn't, it was for me because, you know, old movie nerd, what can I tell you? But okay, uh, so she's playing, she, in a way, a, a Marlena Dietrich type in that. Kind right? of, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Except like during the war, she was like a huge American uh, advocate and right. sold bonds and was like super duper anti-Nazi. And then she goes back to Germany and makes this movie in the rubble. And then like five years after this movie or three years after this movie, she makes Judgment in Nuremberg. So, I mean, I, I, I think I give her a little more credit on the stand, but I feel like and, and, and this is this is actually like an interesting performance for her because Dietrich does a lot of Dietrich in, in her movies and I, I, I give her points for this like this is reminiscent both backwards to the foreign affair movie and also forward to Judgment at Nuremberg where she's playing this person who's the wife of a Nazi general and stuff so uh, you know it's an interesting performance I, I mean I take your point but I, I give her point I, I think for people who would have recognized her it would have been a little bit more layered than that I, I think they're trying to make her unlikable on the stand yeah um, uh, because yeah. uh, at every moment she's supposed to be unlikable because from the moment she walks in, Charles Lawton is all, oh, we we can't have her anywhere near the witness stand. Mm-hmm. She'll hang my client. And and she literally tries to do that. So, um, yeah. so I, I think it's a well, intentional choice by well, Billy Wilder. Another reason, and, that, and her. another reason that she's kind of a, a wooden performance is that, you know, she was about uh, 55, 56 at this time. And she was... 
she pinned her skin back. She was notorious for that, for, for giving her kind of a, um, a, a tightening her face with these like little clips that would, she, she would tie huh. into her wig. And so she can't really make a lot of expressions. The poor she thing. hasn't quite the, like the big thing where she falls off the stage and has a serious injury hasn't quite happened. Oh my God. We're nerding out about mm. Marlena Dietrich in the fifties and sixties. I apologize incomparable audience, but that's what we're doing. So yeah. So she's, she's sort of broken, but not as broken as she will be like in five or 10 years. So Ran- Randy, Randy's basically described fifties uh, Botox, which is <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. She didn't have any wrinkles, uh, barely any wrinkles in her, in her forehead. And she was also um, uh, the actress that plays, the hot young thing who pops up at the very end. Her name Rudely. is Rudely. Rudely, and she's still alive. And as she's, of this recording, as of this recording, <laughs> right last now. time uh, <laughs> I checked, and and she said that uh, two things about Mar- Marlena is that uh, uh, the first thing is that she was when she saw Rudely. Rudely was a blonde, and she's like nine. Get her, get her out of here. Mm. <laughs> no more, no other blonde. I'll buy that. So, so Ruta Lee had to uh, change her hair color to become a brunette, which I actually mentioned. Um, what was it? Clingy brunette or uh, something yes, like that. Yes, we'll, clingy we'll, brunette. we can get to that later. And then also she said that uh, Marlena uh, brought her own lighting equipment. You know, wow. so she'd, she'd say, like, I need a lighting, uh, you know, a lighting equipment, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, well, we don't have it. She'd say, it's in my box here with these little foam inserts. And uh, here it is for you. You know, go, um, go uh, capture me fabulously. Isn't that the thing with the Von Sternberg movies is that? Yes, yes. He he lit things so well for whoever his cinematographer were or whoever he worked with lit her in a way that was that's what made her in in many yeah, respects. Yeah, she learned about lighting from that and like took it forward and was always like all about her key light throughout her career. Interesting. And then and then a touch of evil was like just a year or two later. Yes. Um, yeah. another fabulous for Jason a, a fantastic uh, Orson oh Welles movie. And all, all I can remember is is uh, Orson Welles coming into her her uh, parlor and she says "Ver closed." <laughs> I I'll tell you the, Tell me my future. You ain't got none, baby. You're all used up. These are yeah. references I don't understand. Um, oh, that's why it's old movie club. So they're the, wonderful. The end, though, it, it is really great because, like, I expect that Tyrone Power is guilty, right? I actually expect that. I expect because because what the way it's laid out, it, it felt to me like, well, this is the th- thing where you lay it out and then you come up with all the reasons why he must be innocent. But if you li- listen to, like, to the initial description. He also he's probably guilty. But what I didn't expect is the twist where we get him all sweaty going like, oh, why does she betray me? No. Why? And then in that last scene, she is the one who's saying, well, who is this woman? What? But I love you. Why did why did you betray me? And he's like, look, you know, look, lady, it's uh, it's only fair. I, I rescued you. See, that's you the part I don't buy. I don't later. buy Dietrich's flipping that. I buy him as guilty, 100%. I buy, the, I buy both of them as acting through the whole thing. And then we find out the twist at the end. And then when Dietrich goes, no, but I love you. That's the part I don't Interesting. buy. Interesting. 
I just I, I think it's there yeah. also because it sets up uh, Charles Lawton to be like, no, cancel the the, the cruise reservations. I've got my next <laughs> case. Gonna I'm going to defend her. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to know uh, what part of English legal proceeding just leaves murder weapons lying around mm, 100%. To, be, to be used to be used Indeed. after the case on to, to create new murder cases. Uh, I mean, to be well fair, done, later English on in court. Twelve Angry Men, there will be a knife. There won't yes. be any murders, but. Knives yeah, I are would, just lying around, would, apparently, in 1957. I was going to say, the jury, do, can the jury ask for the murder weapon and then use it to play Mumbly Peg? Because that kind of <laughs> happens in 12 Angry Men. I have evidence questions, is what I'm saying. So did, uh-huh. did you realize, Jason, that uh, Charles Lawton and Nelsa Lanchester were married? I, I did not know that. They were um, married. But, and but, she oh. was the bride of Frankenstein, which but, is probably the movie you might remember her hmm. from if you remember her from anything. But I, I love Poppins. their, I love their repartee. Yes, fair, fair. And fair. it happens very quickly. I, well, I was going to say there's the the psychiatrist from from uh, Miracle on 34th Street is here. Uh, he's in this. <laughs> and and, and also that. there's a there's a just how Erica always uh, identifies the Doctor Who actors. I love old movie club because I get to, to identify all the all the Star Trek actors. And yes, the butler is uh, Ian Wolf is in two Star Trek yes. episodes, so I enjoyed seeing him and going. Oh, it's Mister Atos. He's he's from a future library, uh, but he, he's here playing the part that I basically, you know, you cast Ian Wolf, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get mm-hmm. a. I guess he's a I, clerk, I like but to, he's a butler basically. I would butler. like to question the the chambers, as they say over there, or law firm, mm-hmm. as we'd say over here, that uh, Sir Wilfred is a part of. Do you have to be like 300 years old to get a job there? Because yes. Yes. B- b- between you, you have Carter, who's all, oh, I've been with you since 1913, sir. Mm-hmm. Although the women working in the office are all ancient. And then he says, well, I'm too old and tired to take this case. So I'll bring in my young, dynamic successor to, to handle it. And the, the other he, the other guy is old enough to babysit Jesus. It's, 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 it's incredible. It's very serious business. You got to work your yeah. way up. It takes a long time to get to... He, he, I mean, he is a knight, right? He he is Sir. So he's, sir uh, Yeah, he's Wilfred, been knighted so, and he's a sir Queen's Wilfred. Council, yeah. so... Uh, so obviously, uh, indeed, um, he, he's very, indeed, very been around a bit. Very serious. All, solved all those cases. I always just wonder how that or impacts whatever. legal cases. Like, so the judge has to say, sir, so and so, as opposed to Bob, it's your time. You're up. It, it just mm. doesn't seem fair. You know, did you see there was one lady in the audience with a wig uh, among all the, the guys in wigs? And I was wondering. So she's obviously a lawyer of some sort. Mm. I thought that was. Yes. Oh, yes. And again, multiple women on the jury, which is uh, something that doesn't happen on 12 Angry Men. I I know. I had that in my notes. Let me tell you. I can assure you of that. (laughs) Having watched that first, I was like, oh, look, Lauren and I were watching this after watching that. And I'm like, hey, they let the ladies on the jury this time. Oh, how nice. Um, and, and in fact, Marlena Dietrich says, oh, I hope he has an all women jury. He's sure to get off. Right. She does indeed. (sighs) Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 
I thought this was a fun movie, right? Like, I think it's a fun movie. I think it's got a lot of funny stuff. Again, the courtroom drama, like, you know, we get to see a lot of people deposed in court and it's like, okay, like that, that moves along and it, and it's got snappy moments, but the stuff that I really loved and that I will take away is Charles Lawton and all of his banter and his stealing cigars and drinking uh, cocoa, you know, that's actually brandy. And also his uh, back and forth with the nurse and riding, riding up and down his little, uh, his little lift on the staircase. Like that stuff's just delightful. Like, again, I would have liked to see all the many Sir Wilfred, uh, you know, cases as a TV show, because this one is great, right? Like it's, it's really, and, that, and, that part is really fun. And again, yeah, the, the reason to watch this movie is the, really the uh, uh, Charles Lawton, Elsa Lancaster um, uh, interplay. Um, and th- there you get the Billy Wilder style, yes. style banter um, that you don't really have in the courtroom scenes. Cause it's very, very formal. Um, it's a pretty plot wise. It's a, a pretty pedestrian thing um uh uh twists aside but i i do enjoy um the 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 charles lawton character it's really a fun performance he sort of makes me think of a more fun orson wells because he's like the same thing he's like this big sort of regal i am charles lawton kind of presence but a little a lot less pedantic than wells is and sort of funny at the same i I thought i don't really want to hang out with either of them but i loved watching charles lawton and the funny thing is i've seen this movie a few times but it's been a very long time and it's the kind of thing where like i remember the courtroom scenes and i don't remember the other scenes and i watched it more carefully this time i'm like oh my god the courtroom seems to be the most boring part of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's also doing. It's a little bit of like Winston Churchill, attorney at law. <laughs> sort of what's going on here. <laughs> but it's okay. That's like that's good. Again, high concept, but I'm here for it. I'm I'm here for it. I think there's there's stunt casting in this movie, and mm-hmm. obviously pairing Charles Lawton with Elsa Lancaster was was is stunt casting, and I'm it, it's interesting to me. That Jason liked the interplay between them without knowing that they're husband and wife, because I knew they were husband and wife, and I just found it delightful. And I think people in 1957, the vast majority of the audience would know that and would find it delightful. And that's part of what, to, to me, that was part of what made it funny, is, you know, you old battle axe kind of thing. Um and in, in the, the same in, in the opposite direction. So I th- I thought that was great. Marlena Dietrich is obviously stunt casting. You know she you know, we can, oh, yeah. I, I don't know what happened in the play, but I really doubt that in the play they actually had someone from Germany who could not put on an English accent to save her <laughs> life, uh, playing that role. And the thing about it, and you you know you mentioned uh, Marlena not being maybe the greatest actress in the world. I thought she did fine in this for what she's supposed to do in this. Um, and I think that first scene in, in the, uh, in Charles Lawton's office where they just kind of, after she leaves, they just, Oh, geez, what, the, what are we going to do with that? Yeah. Uh, I thought, you know, I think she does a very good job in that. I agree. One of the things though, that Tyrone power is so bad I, I, I he's just really terrible. I, yeah. I mean, I know that I, I have seen miscast. the mark of Zorro. I think that's the problem. Well, you know, one of the things that's that he's got going for him in this movie is that he's his character is playing, is acting. And so you could make the argument 
that the reason the acting is so bad is because is not because Tyrone Power is a bad actor. It's because Leonard Vol. Yeah, mm. great. Thank good name. Leonard Vol yes. is a bad actor. And eh, I don't think so. I think it works. I, I I think you cast Tyrone Power to play bad to be a bad actor because he is one. I don't I don't understand how I mean he's good looking. Actually at this point, he's almost no. dead, right? Yes, yeah, he's is this it? was his was his, is his last movie or it's very or, close, or, if not his last yeah. movie. Yeah. I mean, he died young. And yeah, now you know, and it was I don't think he died with drink, right? He had a heart massive heart attack or something. Yeah, right? heart attack, yeah. yeah, yeah. He lived a rough father life, but young. yeah, he did have a heart attack. Yeah, his father died young too with a heart attack. Yep. Uh, not knowing anything about like a lot of these stars, including Tyrone Power, I know almost nothing about him. Uh he yes, he struck me in this movie as kind of just a guy. Like the, his biggest his biggest move i mean he has the moment on the on the stand where he shouts like no no i i didn't do it it's, like it's not true but, christine but like, what are you doing but the biggest yeah. move that they have for him is making him sweaty like really seriously his big move is he oh he's boy he's sweaty yep he can he can sweat on command yeah he's a sweaty <laughs> guy that's what he is so he's just a guy to me i was like ha yeah, having he's having bo bridges in the the remake was uh i think apropos because it, it is literally it, 1950s bo bridges is here ladies and gentlemen so to, so tyron power in the late 30s and early 40s was sort of a swashbuckler sort of a comparable to errol flynn and mm -hmm. uh, we talk about him in line of towers and shields 36 nightmare alley where he's playing against type he's playing a villain and a con man which is probably his best role. But I think people who knew who Tyrone Power was would have known him as a pretty boy who was, you know, swashbuckling in the late 30s right. and, and 40s and were like, what happened to Tyrone Power? Because he hasn't really made a big marquee movie in like five or maybe even 10 years because Nightmare Alley is 1947. And I think he, he'd been drinking quite a bit because he looks yeah, older yeah. than, I think he's just like 40, in his early 40s, I think. In, at, during yes, his, yeah. Sounds about right. I guess it's uh, tough business uh, inventing an egg beater. <laughs> it really wears you, really wears you down. I see, guess. See, that's what's really interesting because this character is a guy who is down on his luck. Mm -hmm. He's never able to write, like catch a break. He's he's in the war. He comes home from the war. He's got a wife, and he has this sort of itinerant lifestyle. And whether he's guilty or innocent of the crime. The, the Tyrone Power that's presented in the beginning of the movie, who is this, he's he's being Tyrone Power, like he's, I am Tyrone Power, kind of kind of a guy, even as he's Leonard Vole. It doesn't really match with what you learn about the character over the course of the movie. So it's clear that something is up. Either yes. he's lying or we're missing something. It's just, it does, nothing kind of, nothing hangs together and, properly. And this is why I think actually the script does a good job of... And the casting is is question. The casting's trying to get you to look in the other direction. And the script, I think, does a good job of playing fair in the sense that if you take the facts as we learn them very early on in the movie about Leonard Vole, you're like, of course he did it. And then the movie proceeds to obfuscate everything and complicate, like their plan, right? Which is, well, they'll never believe him. But if they, but if if she testifies that he did it, and then they discredit her, then they'll let him off because they will have forgotten all of the very good reasons why this guy who could never hold down a job and is just like an, in, a, an inventor of stupid stuff and, a, a, you know, and has <laughs> no money, like that they, th if you th think about the facts, 
of you know he killed the old lady for her money like that's totally what happened but they then they obfuscate it and the movie does that uh, uh the script does that as well as in the in the actual trial they do it and i, I do think it works but shelly you're right um i i think one of the fascinating things about looking at old movies and you you all who have watched a lot of them know the historic context but like as a person who's a babe in the woods about that stuff like I know a lot of times when I watch these old movies that the movie thinks that I've I've got facts in my pocket that I don't have because that's where you we're going to cast Tyrone Power because the audience thinks they know what kind of part he'll play and that will work for us. And it doesn't necessarily work for me because I don't know who he is. Fascinating. It's a great thing about the studio system, really, because the studio system would would would. Oh, that's that guy, and and this movie can go. No, it's not that guy. Right. Je- je- just as a a testament to how important acting is to um a, a story. Um, the TV movie that I watched uh basically used the the Billy Wilder and uh, who was the other co writer on this uh Currents. Uh, Currents? Don't know. Kernitz. Uh It used Kernitz. the script from the yeah. movie, cutting out basically the flashback scenes. But uh, yeah, but otherwise it's the same script. And it's, it's Ralph Richardson and um, uh, Deborah Carr as uh, Sir Wilfred and the nurse. Um, oh. And they, they're good actors, but they had absolutely no chemistry in no. them. I was going to say, that ban- upsets me. Those don't yeah, seem the, to go yeah. together. The, that just the doesn't seem right. The banter was terrible, and there, there's scenes where Sir Wilfred is threatening to, to beat the nurse savagely, and when it's Charles Lawton and Nelson Lancaster, you're all, ah, it's funny, he's gonna beat her! And when it's Sir Ra- and when it's Ralph Richardson, you're all, oh no, we need to get her out of there, that's terrible, he is really gonna kill her. So, um, uh, th- this is the importance of, of, of good casting. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And Shelly, do we know how to pronounce Marlena or Marlene? Uh, Mar- Marlena. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. Marlena Dietrich. Uh, yeah. At least I know that about we, her. We, ha- we haven't said a word about Una O'Connor, who is in this movie. Well, and, and a delight. I love Una. Is she still alive, Randy? <laughs> I think she's, she's 120, 135. Yeah, she's... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. She's born she in 1880. Feet. She doesn't look a day under 120. Yeah, she's she was, very she, scotch, she, obviously. She was born old, Uno O'Connor. Yeah. She was, oh, man, she's <laughs> kind of like um Kind of like Una Merkel, actually. Like, there are a mm-hmm. lot of actors like that who are just born old, and they always do older parts. And if you're if you're Angela Lansbury and you're born old, you can overcome it. But if you're Una Merkel or Una O'Connor, you're just like, you know what? It's a paycheck. Another great courtroom courtroom moment, right? Where it's like, yeah, do you use a hearing aid? <laughs> <laughs> what? Pardon? What? 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 I'm, no, I'm still waiting for it. It's like, oh well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, we haven't mentioned her yet, but I thought the uh, her name was Norma Varden, who played. Um, the uh oh the, the murder, you know, rich the murder old lady yeah very nice yeah. old lady and uh, not, not not great taste in hats no no terrible taste in hats all right uh anything else about witness for the prosecution before we move on well this is the first time i've seen it um hmm. and i have in my notes in uh uh in a box it says obviously marlena uh, when it's the call from the woman who has the goods on on Christine. Oh. So mm-hmm. I I did know, and it had to do with the fact that she, they were clearly covering up. I don't I don't know. How, it just seemed like it had to be her. 
Interesting. Um, they were covering up her her hands or whatever. Um, it just it was her. It, I was it, thrown by it the bad so accent. Bizarre. I was thrown. I was so w- thrown by the bad accent. Well, that that to me, that's the main clue. Ah. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Watson. So that accent th- was terrifying. <laughs> I, I just I just oh, thought yeah. it was a bad accent, not a clue. But that was my mistake. That was why you uh, solved the so murder the and I did tw- not. Yeah. So the whole twist at the end just annoyed the crap out of me. The, the way the way she thinks the plot is so clever and people apparently lots and lots of people think the plot is so clever and I just don't I don't care. Um, and then the other thing is and we were talking about this before uh, the clingy brunette Ruta Lee and you know when you see her I think the first time you see her is when uh, Elsa comes in and is sitting in the gallery and she kind yeah. of scoots scooches Ruta Lee over. And it's clear that this woman is something because she is lit different from the rest of the people in the gallery. She has better makeup. She has better hair, uh, even if it is the wrong color than anyone else in the, in the gallery. She's, there's some reason for it. I didn't know it was Ruta Lee. And I do know, I remember Ruta Lee because I watched high rollers, uh, the the game show with Alex Trebek, oh, his yo, first game man. show, as far as I know, and she was the co-host. She no did the rolling way. of the dice. Oh yes. my oh, god! Yes. I have to, and I have it written down in my notes as Miss Rudely because that was how Alex Trebek always introduced her. She nice. was not, and you know, here's my co-host. Here's Rudely. No, Miss Rudely, because she was. I don't know. I guess she must have been in her forties or something, but she was. You know, obviously old for for an actress uh, and, and an ingenue, and so you know, there she is. She's she was rolling the dice down rolling the, the thing for Alex Trebek. You can look it oh, up. I, I did read that that um, uh, that she said it, when when she joined the set on this movie. You no, know, it was it was her and all these like big stars, and she said that Charles Lawton actually like slapped her on the butt and said it was one of the best he'd ever seen and then they were like fast friends after that so (laughs) she didn't be offended by it good way to make friends amongst the minor players i uh (laughs) i i I found something interesting that this movie might not have played well the, the plot might not have happened this way now because about 15 years ago the uk uh dumped their double jeopardy rule so you can actually yes. be tried twice for the same for the same crime, and it says, "quote If new, compelling, reliable, and substantial evidence emerges." Wow! Take that, dead Tyrone Power. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's. There, let's... there, there's one, there, there is one last thing I want to okay. bring up because it's yes. always bugged me about witness for the prosecution, and then we can move on. The thing with the monocle test, where he oh. he is, this has always bugged me. What oh. the hell is that supposed to prove? Where Charles Lawton wears his monocle, and and the sun beams in and reflects off the monocle and reflects in the the person he's interviewing's eyes, and he's able to tell their guilt. But, that's his apparent superpower. But that's so that's his I, trademark, Phil. You forget that ever since season one, episode three of Robarts of the Bailey, he's always <laughs> using the monocle test to get to. The- 
Because the other lawyer comes in and goes, did you give him the monocle test? <laughs> well, what kind of? The God season 65 wrap of that show well, will be uh, previewed Sir, on the Incomparable Network Sir next Wilfred, um, Sir Wilfred is a genius with angles, obviously. Yeah. Because obviously. he always stands everybody in the right place so he can bring out the monocle and shine it in their face where it magnifies into a laser beam on their eyeballs. <laughs> However, it is a pretty great setup for when Marlena Dietrich just goes over to the window and drops the shade, right? It's like... Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. Mm. The, the only problem you. with that, he's doing it in England, a notably, notably sunny England. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> what does he do when it's cloudy? Well, which is, from my experience, every day he, of the week. He has is... children. He has young uh, laborers who are who are children who are outside uh-huh. um, uh, feeding coal into a a, a <laughs> lamp that that beams in the window well, for the monocle. Yeah. They're using Marlena's special lighting. Needs more sun now. I'm sure they have good Cockney accents. That was a good accent, yeah. Phil. That was up there with Marlena yeah, no, Dietrich. I could, I, could, I, could, I could play Marlena Dietrich's part. Yeah. So great. No, the upsetting. thing the thing about the monocle though is, you know, he points the he points out the word murder weapon to Marlena at the end. He, he the the monocle light plays across the knife as it's sitting there on the desk and the, and mm-hmm. she sees it notices it and picks it up you know he he's an accessory no, well the monocle is the ultimate accessory <laughs> the, the, the monocle see is the I accessory yes that's right and, and yes I, I see what you did there too yes and, and then and then um henry fonda got the same knife at a pawn shop in london <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> weird it's a it's switch weird. knife delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. All right, let's let's speak your switch knives. Let's move on to Twelve Angry Men, uh, again, also from 1957, directed by Sidney Lumet, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, a famous, based on a a a, t- a live TV drama. Uh, it seems stagey because it is stagey, but it wasn't a stage play originally. It was a teleplay, I think, is where it started, and then they made it into this movie. But it is one of those like we don't need that many sets, and we can do it live. It feels very stagey, even so. And the premise is, of course, uh, the jury is given the instructions. We don't know anything about the case. They're put in the jury room. And we learn about the case as the jury uh, argues about it, beginning with only Henry Fonda as the, the only juror who will vote not guilty. Everybody else wants to get out of there. And over the course of the 96-minute runtime of the movie, they end up bringing it all the way over to where he's found not guilty. That's your elevator pitch for 12 angry men, but you have to watch all the characters go from point a to point B in this, uh, in this film, uh, which again, I hadn't seen before. I thought it was a lot of fun. It is always fun to spot all the amazingly uh, recognizable actors who are in this along with the random people. It is a, it is a murder. 
murderer's row of character actors in this movie. Yeah. Right. But they so were found not guilty. So many people who go on to television careers. It's just like, yes. oh, that guy and that guy and Ma- that guy. Martin Balsam, Lee J. Cobb, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Jack Warden, Henry Fonda, Ed Begley Sr., uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and who's the, the John and, Fiedler, and the, the greatest the vo- of them all. John Fiedler, the voice yeah. of John Fiedler from Star Trek. The voice of Piglet. Yes, indeed. I, I could <laughs> not help hearing Piglet, that voice. Yes. yes, absolutely. He's Jack the Ripper uh, in Star Trek and he Piglet is. in Winnie spoiler. the Pooh. Mm, sorry, spoiler for Star Trek. <laughs> oh, and I have to mention that I, I once had lunch with Ed Begley Jr. So. Okay. There. Yes, that's we right, did not talk about his. We did not talk about his dance performance. Ed Bigley Senior, real playing a real sob here. Wow. Yeah, no, it, it yeah, I, it is. Begley not... and Lee J. Cobb both film noir veterans, so they certainly had mm-hmm. done that in a very different way in sort of the film noir world, and now they're guys in ties playing complete jerks. Honestly, one of the things that really struck me as a modern viewer, as a 2023 viewer of a movie from 1957, was how I think accurately portrayed some of these characters are about their views of those people right and and here mm-hmm. it's mostly just those poor people um but it's like right. those people you know they're all they're all worthless they could just they could do something else but they're lazy all of those things that are not too far from our discourse even today and so you see it on this jury where there's like all the all the presupposition. I got I got to be honest, Phil. My worry about this, knowing that this is a lauded movie, I was like, okay, it's probably going to be good. But I was a little worried it was going to be a little too pat in its. Uh, oh, we can't, you know, we can't, we can't assume anything, and we gotta we gotta give the due process, and we gotta gotta not make assumptions and look at the evidence and all of that. And you know what? It it did a pretty artful job, I think, of not being. Yeah. Not being that and it being more about the 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 I love that the state of the case and the details of the case come out amid this kind of human drama and interplay between a bunch of these jurors. And, and it, it really is beautifully executed. It really it, is. It, it has its moments where it, it runs dangerously close to being preachy it without does. ever yeah. uh, going going over the top. And um, for instance, the Lee J. Cobb character um, in the hands of someone else uh, could really be. Um, unbearable. <laughs> He's very, very loud, very loud at the top of his lungs, kind of, kind of character. But um, he actually manages to pull it back at times and give you the sense of the humanity of of this uh guy who's just so angry at his son that he is going to take it out on the first person he can. And the first person he can happens to be on trial for murder. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's a, a very good, uh, uh, performance. I thought. Yeah. He, I mean, he's, when you look at the, the cast on paper, as it were, you know, you think these guys are playing up against Henry Fonda. Does that make sense? They shouldn't be able to do that except mm-hmm. Lee J. Cobb. Except Lee J. Cobb, and of course yeah. he's he's really good, and he's got a tough he's got a tough job here because there are some places in this movie where the way it's written for him is maybe not tremendously realistic uh, in mistakes that he makes as he's making his arguments and things, but uh, but honestly everybody holds up uh, with this mm-hmm. you know in, in 1957 this tremendous star. Uh, of Henry Fonda, that's who's also the producer of this. So he's, you know, in some ways their boss. So it, it's. I think they all do a great job. I, I 
I don't think I've ever seen this movie all the way through, but it was one of those movies that used to show up a lot when I was a kid and I would see parts of it at one time or another. And I, I think that I always thought it was maybe overplayed like the, the Lee J Cobb character and the Ed Begley character who are obviously racist and hateful people and, and Jack Warden. Um, well, Jack, Jack I, Warden is I, I history's thought, worst monster, but we'll get to that. That's, that's <laughs> just real. wants I'm, to get to the yes, Yankees game, you know? We, we, well, which is the worst thing in the world. He's a it Yankees is. fan. It hey, is. yo, Baltimore! <laughs> and then it's raining, yeah. you know, so it, they're not yeah. playing that game. But, but I, I think, I thought when I was a kid, people aren't really that bad. You know, that it was overplayed. Now that I'm 62 years old, I think people are that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of people that are that bad. Lots of people that I have known through my life in the past, you know, 40 plus years since I, since I last saw bits of this movie are, are that bad or worse. And so it took on in this viewing a much more realistic tone to me than it was than, I, than it was when I was a kid. So I think Fonda is smart about how he plays it. And and the thing about Henry Fonda is I don't think he's the best actor in the world, but I think he's really good in ensembles. And I think he knows when to dial it up and when he knows and knows when to dial it back. And especially because he's producer and because he has this really dynamite cast, which I presume he had a lot to do in picking. I think he's real smart because he knows that his character's job is to convince these guys of his point of view, which he's not even entirely set on in the beginning, but he knows he's not going to do it by being Lee Jacob. He's not going to browbeat him into doing it. And he's trying to, he's sort of doing what I think in the, in the fifties would have been characterized as the sort of every man, the best of America, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's a way where that can go incredibly wrong because from our 2023 point of view, that can look really uh, limited. But I think the actor is very smart in saying what he's going to say, using the words that were given to him, and then letting the other actors rant and rave as they will or do whatever they do. I mean, if you if you look at what Fonda does in the movie, it's mostly not him talking. He does have things to say, and he has a way of swaying other people. But who's pounding the, the furniture and who's like pacing around the most? It's Ed Begley and it's Lee J. Cobb and it's yeah. the people who have the loudest things to say. On another level, I was going to say this for, for later, but I, on another level, just the fact that it's 12 white guys as a jury, I just felt, I mean, I've seen this before, but it's been a really long time, and I just felt uncomfortable. Like, these guys who are all middle-aged, basically middle-aged white men, there are a few that are younger and a few that are older, but they're middle-aged white guys of a relatively middle-class point of view, and they're casting, you know, judgment on this kid that's that's poor, who may or may not be guilty. Spoiler alert, we don't really know. Uh, it just feels like this incredibly uh, limited, claustrophobic, not not only claustrophobic in the fact that they're in one jury room the whole time, but I, I want to hit most of them. And it's not just for the racism. It's just for the fact that they're they're so like locked into sort of a mainstream perspective, which I think is entirely appropriate for 1957. I don't fault the way Sidney Lumet did it. I don't fault the way Henry Fonda cast it, whatever. But I'm just saying as a 2023 viewer who happens to be a lady, oh. I just find it really 
hard to watch, claustrophobic. The acting is great. And I, I sort of got over that because I think in the first 30 minutes, I was really uncomfortable with it. And then I think I, I sort of got into it as the characters blew out a little bit and you learn more about them as individuals. They're so they're so blustery and 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 just uh, full of testosterone and and there's several times you think might, maybe a fight's going to break out. It just seems so very like like you know a bunch of men trying to outman each other. It's a big pissing contest. Yeah, there there's an argument to be made that especially in, for the time that what you what the advantage of having it be a bunch of middle mostly middle aged men in a room together is that. They are, you know, it is it is a reflection of the, the the centers of power in society and they should all like be there and have each other's backs. And the fact is that they almost railroad this kid until Henry Fonda ste- steps up. And I think there's something interesting there about how it's implicit, sort of like, well, you know, wait a second, we're the ones who control the levers of power. We should just be able to all get along and agree on this. And and Henry Fonda starts to peel them all apart and sort of show everybody's dif- differences. Because when we enter, we don't know anything about them and it really is just a bunch of white guys. And so, you know, how do they differ? And Henry Fonda does it. I also agree that like this dynamic, which works for this script is not a dynamic that would work today. You would need a very different kind of dynamic, but by having them all be white guys, they end up being like, okay, that's, that's not going to peel them apart. It ends up being these tinier details that Jack Klugman grew up poor, and that the the one the one guy Joe, George Voskovec is a uh, is is an immigrant, and there is the the old the old man who is boy well, shut up old man right there's a lot of like really mean things that uh, I'll punch you if you say mean things to the old man uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, like you end up with and E.G. Marshall actually is really interesting. He's like he's like the um, unquestioning middle-aged uh you know middle-class white guy who just kind of goes along with whatever the standard assumptions are and then he gets uh he gets uh challenged with facts and he and he's like oh yes and like he needs to be uh he needs to be reminded of facts that he's you know that the assumptions he's making so i i like that about it but but yeah a modern a version of this would have to be a very different dynamic, but I I did appreciate the art of it that they're that they're taking these guys who are all should be like on the same side and are all pretty much the same, and then very Henry Fonda really is very slowly peeling them away from one another until he's and it is a power struggle, right? Like he's he gets the upper hand, and then the then suddenly there's that moment where they keep taking votes, right? And it's like well now it's six six, and now it's sliding the other way where where the 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 people like Lee J Cobb. And Jack Warden uh, and E.G. Marshall, like everybody starts, uh, who's on the other side starts to think like, oh, geez, like now we're in the minority here. Now, what are we going to do about this? Uh, we're on the defensive. And like th- that dynamic is really interesting, too. There's also the moment where Martin Balsam, who's the, the foreman of the jury. I think that's a really great understated moment where he uh, changes his vote because he's tried to just be the one moderating the panel. And then he changes his vote. And it's like, oh, boy, here we go. Like, so I, I think, you know, there's a reason that this is a classic, um, but at the same time, yeah, the, the like, and, and, and the all, all white men dynamic works for the way it's architected, but you'd never do it like this now. Right. You just, it, it wouldn't, 
Well, it wouldn't be a realistic jury now. Absolutely. One of these moments, one of these moments uh, struck me because I was on a jury back in the 90s and there was a woman on the jury because, you know, we have women on juries now. Oh. And <laughs> like in England, she, <laughs> crazy, crazy dog. But she um, what what she a country, <laughs> what a country. Crazy. And she wanted to leave. She wanted to get things over with. And she just wanted right. to go with whatever the the majority vote was. And I was the one, even though she was on my side, to say, no, you really have to think about this. You can't just go with the flow because you've got to be somewhere. You know, there's a game or whatever yeah. you're going home to. And and it I I I made a similar similar speech, but looking back on it, I probably should have just said, Well, you're with me, just whatever, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. Well, what's what's smart about it is that the ways they change their minds are so different mm -hmm. because some of them it's about the evidence. Some of them, like Lee J. Cobb in the end, is he's worn down basically. He doesn't yeah. really change his and mind. So he's worn down. Begley, Begley and, too. Yeah, yeah, and, and I and I think the variety of ways they it's clear Fonda has the goal to change their minds, but he's not on a soapbox. He's he's doing it in a way that whether he has artifice about it, whether he's behaving like a, a defense attorney would behave, or whether he's just a guy who's like, man, I have questions. I don't know. The, the way that the script has the people, the men individually change their points of view. I mean, yeah, I think E.G. Marshall's is a standout because you can see him thinking and the close-ups of him are so great yeah. and as an actor you know, you just sort of watch him, watch his his brain sort of click through, whereas others, it's much more visceral and much yeah. more emotional the way they do it. Yeah, no, he's, he has to challenge his assumptions. That's that great moment. It's like he 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 realized he had to reanalyze his priors. Yeah. And, and when he does, he goes, oh, oh, right. And it, like, it's a moment of realization. In most of the cases, and I, I can't remember all of them, what changed them was something that was personal to them. Uh, you know, with E.G. Marshall, it was the glasses and the and the, right. the uh, marks on the on the, on the nose. Side of his nose. I noticed the, the marks on her nose too. What a twist! Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and for, and for you know, for Jack Klugman, it was because he's from the wrong side of the tracks, and maybe something about the switchblade too. Um, and uh, with uh, oh Joseph Sweeney, he know he recognizes the old man downstairs might have. He's lonely. He's he's the Sweeney's the old man, so he rec he understands the old man, and everyone gets peeled away because they see something of themselves in some somebody in this place, and that personalized the the thing to them. Which, and it was not personalized to them when they when they walked in the jury room, and that's what turns them around. Uh, you know, Lee J. Cobb, you know, has the meltdown about his son. Um, and, and which is maybe a little bit too much as yeah. it's, as it's written. I think he does a good job yeah, acting it, I agree. but, but, but I think it it is, it's maybe overwritten, but you know, that's what turns him is that finally he does get to kind of see the kid, uh, who's on trial as his son and himself as the father who got, who got stabbed. I like Lee J. Cobb's performance a lot. But I would say I don't think the script does him any favors. And in one of those things of being somebody who hasn't seen the movie before, like there's there's movie shorthand. <laughs> and then there's what's the first thing we learn about 
juror number three is like, oh, it's a picture of my son, and I, I'm angry with my yeah. son. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, this is information you should all like. know about. And then I'm going to rip this picture up later. It's like, again, I think it's a, a really good performance, and I think it, there's a lot of great visceral stuff there, but they have to do some real, like, putting Chekhov's gun up on the wall at the beginning uh, the, that the- is ham-handed. The important part of subtext is the sub part. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. Um so this has been remade a couple of times uh to, you know, make it less white. <laughs> and perhaps the most uh famous remake was there was a 1997 version that um while the Jack Lemon takes over the Henry Fonda role, there's a lot more um black and latina Latino people in the cast. It's still called. It's still all men, Shelley. It's still twelve, 12 angry men. That's the there, because tw- twelve angry people just doesn't pop off the page, I guess. Um, but um, it is interesting if if the um, if the juror numbers uh, tr- uh, uh, are are consistent with the characterizations between the movie. In that version, Michael T. Williamson is the horrible bigot. And uh, Tony Danza inherits the Jack Warden role as the guy who just wants to go to a ball game. <laughs> I just want to go to my ball game. It looks like game. a great cast. You have Ossie Davis, yeah. Courtney B. Vance, uh, a Hume yeah. Cronin. Oh, yeah. I mean, man. James, James Gandolfini. No, I want to see this movie. Armin Mullerstahl. Wow. Mm-hmm. Dorian Harewood. Wow. <laughs> or James Olmos. He's just a mm-hmm. watchmaker. Mary McDonnell as the judge. Oh, they let ladies do that now? What? Oh, that, Can yeah, I say, like, in, in, the, in the one we watched... I didn't understand why the judge's delivery was like that. It made no sense. Oh, I'll tell you why. Because he's bored and doesn't care. It, I know, it, but it, it was overdone. It was it like, was. okay, well, I, is that really what you're going for? I think they want to establish that this is a this is an open and shut case, and everyone is just going to go out and go home, and 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 that's that. So California is actually. Uh, I did just an article came out today about well, what do they call them in the switch knives. Switch knives. Uh, there's actually an effort afoot to legalize switchblades in California. And apparently that they've been legalized in, in many other states. And it actually mentioned, the article mentioned this movie um, and a couple other ones is, and um, um, uh, the one I'm not, I can't think of the name, uh, that that popularized the idea of switchblades as especially vicious weapons and that were you know used uh and 12 used angry men rebel without a cause and west side story apparently. west side story yeah west side story yeah, yeah. sure yeah of course so they and that mentioned i think it mentions in, in this movie that they were banned uh in new york that these switchblades were were illegal at that time uh but now there's an effort afoot kind of uh you know drawing on like well this switch banning switchblades is racist and also you know, we can have firearms. Why can't we can have all these guns? Why can't we have a switchblade? So, so uh, I was curious, and because I'm from Texas, I had to look it up. And so, the first site that came up on my list is Texas Knife Laws. So, who knew there was a <laughs> Texas Knife Laws site? But of course, there is because it's Texas. Uh, and yeah, switchblades. Um, I can't find where it says where they're legal or not. Come on, people, get to the point. <laughs> I could just uh, go down to the local store and pick up an identical switchblade as the one that was used in the murder weapon. Yeah, sure. Apparently, you're not supposed to do that on a jury. But also, I read that you're you're not supposed to like... 2013 law lifted the ban on switchblades in Texas. So come on down. 
I, I, I'd like to mention Sidney Lumet here, mm-hmm. um, a great director. I believe this is his first feature movie after yes. yeah. lots, TV director. lots of TV. He did do a TV movie, but mostly episodic TV. And I think it actually prepares, uh, he's the perfect choice in that sense, because it, it helps him deal with the staginess of this single set thing where he's got to move the camera around uh, Mm. um, this one room. I I think it's, as I was watching it this time around, I really um, appreciated how the, the, the positioning of the camera, the, the, the use of space. It it was, it, it, it's not his best movie, but it's certainly a movie that, that shows his, um, his uh, craftsmanship and 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 shows you the good work to come in movies like Dog Day Afternoon and Fail Safe and and a bunch of other pictures. I think one thing that helps is that he has so many characters in such a small space, and even though mm-hmm. he moves the camera around a little bit, it doesn't look like a stage set. You know, it is. I mean, I've seen plenty of movies that have been turned from plays, especially older than this one. And the fact that you have so many characters to look at, so many of whom are moving, and he choreographs them, like there's the mm-hmm. scene where, you know, we have the racist tirade, and then everybody turns turns, the, turns their, their backs. backs, and you have people looking out windows, you have the the sound of the room. It's the interesting. Rain. I don't, oh, my God. Yeah, the sound the of the rain. rain. Well, even before the rain started, there's all this sort of ambient sound. It, the impression is left that it's been actually recorded in a in a jury room in an upper floor of a building in New York City. And it it just has this sort of uh, realism about it that I think really makes what could be an incredibly stagey piece look a lot better. So I I kind of, I know I've watched this movie before, and I remember back then thinking, you know, I kind of think this kid did it. And now I'm still kind of thinking (laughs) the kid did it. Uh, just as so many coincidences that would have, he had to like lost the knife like that, that night. Mm-hmm. And, and what did that guy downstairs hear, hear him threaten his father? This, I, 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 I kind of wonder like if I would have gone with the crew or if I would have been so, you know, kind of reverse Henry Fonda. <laughs> I think that, I think that it's, it's ambiguous on purpose. And I think the reason is, and this is one of those things that is a little, it's a little bit, part of the like idealistic nature of this movie. And again, as a fifties teleplay, right? Like there are a lot of movies, a lot of, a lot of works from the, from fifties teleplays that were like a bit preachy about certain things because they're like this, but we're making a point. The point of 12 angry men is it doesn't matter if he did it or not. All that matters is that they didn't sufficiently prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And I think that's why unlike witness for the prosecution where we get to learn a lot about the case. We learn almost nothing about it from like the demeanor of the defendant or the people who testified against him. It's all just sifting through the facts. So I would say, I think you're right, Randy. We don't know that he didn't do it, but the, what the movie is saying, what Henry Fonda is saying is doesn't matter whether he did it or not. What matters is, did they prove it? Right. And that's what they kind of pick apart is, did they prove it? Now I will admit there's some detective work going on in the jury room that seems probably not things juries should do. Like I got a, I got a knife and send a, send the other knife in and we're going to try him out and stuff like that. Like there's some of that. That's kind of a little bit ridiculous And there. And there's some fab, fab, fabulism fabrication going on where they're like starting to invent backstories of things based <laughs> on speculation. That seems a little bit much, but I think the larger point is mostly just, did they prove it? 
And the answer to that, they, they decide is no. And like, that's all they need to say. They don't need to find out who did it. They don't need to prove that he didn't do it. They just need to prove that they didn't prove it. And that's that I feel like that's the number one preachy point of this whole thing is that's the process of the legal system is you got to prove it. We can't assume it. And it's interesting that they didn't spend a lot of time talking about reasonable doubt, which is the phrase that you would always hear in a movie like this, where the point was, did he do it or didn't he do it? But you have this limited canvas where you only know what the jury knows. Plus, as Jason correctly points out, wait, we're able to do a lot of detective work on the jury. (laughs) But you could have made the movie about how the jury was incredibly unsure because they had limited information. And if you think about the way the jury system in the United States works, you only have what's presented to you. And there are even limits on how, as a jury, you can consider things. Right. And, you know, could they have come to a point where they knew definitively whether he did it or not? Probably not. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's where where Fonda is taking them, essentially, is he's not taking them to we believe this kid is innocent. He's taking them to if you drop all of your assumptions and your baggage and you actually do what they told us, which is to look at this, the facts objectively, then a lot of your those assumptions about this kid being guilty disappear and you're left with that we don't know, which I like. I mean, I like it. it, it again, it is a little preachy. It's a little... Uh, a little uh, uh, Rod Serling did some of these kind of teleplays too, yeah. where it's like I, yeah. your heart's in the right place, but boy, you know, whoa, it's a little. I get what I get it. I yeah. get what you're saying. Turn it, turn it down. Yeah, yeah, we don't need to hear it that many times. Right. I, I do think that you know one of the things about this about the the importance of uh, reasonable doubt, and uh, even though it wasn't said, I think it was. I think I don't know how anybody. Who watches this movie, and maybe that's just because I'm I'm watching it here now in, in 2023, how anyone does not have the words reasonable doubt in their head every time Henry Fonda says anything, even if he doesn't use those words. But uh, you know, from the judge's instructions at the very beginning, we learn that there's a mandatory death sentence. So this so the jury yeah. doesn't have a lot of play here. They can't they can't do a reduced charge they can't they can't do anything he's either he's either going to be set free or he's going to go to the chair and i think that plays into it certainly that plays into it explicitly in henry fonda's thinking because he says so and so the the surety it's not just the surety of a guilty verdict it's the surety of sending the kid to his death i like the lack of purity about the resolution right because part of me as i'm watching it is thinking well they're just going to end up hung right because these guys are never going to change their opinion and although there's this whole kind of again a little bit preachy at the beginning which is like no we have a responsibility here you have to what do you actually believe in the end how do you get the last couple of guys to vote your way and the answer is you just wear them down when they just want to to be over and they want to go home. I don't think there's, there's no miraculous conversion, right? Where it's like, oh, now that I, now that you've had me think about it for a little while, I realized that the kid really is not guilty. It's like, no, those, some of the guys at the end are really just like, get me out of here. I'll, 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 I'll change with the wind uh, and go not guilty just to be done with it. And I, I kind of like that. It's not all idealistic at the end. And it really is kind of like, we got the, we got the result we wanted, but you know, we didn't necessarily, not everybody in that crucible was transformed by it. Some of them are just not barriers to them finding him not guilty in the end. It's not, yeah. it's a mess. Which, well, I was just going to say that brings us to Jack Warden, uh, <laughs> history's greatest monster. Yeah, <laughs> crazy like a fox. The, wor- he, the worst. 
Well, it's just, he's 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 an he's an awful he's an awful character, yes. and he does a great job of it. And mm-hmm. again, you could say, oh, he's overplaying it or whatever. No, no, no. there are people like no, there are people like that. There are he, lots of people. Yeah, like he that. has no idea ideals. It, it, he's entirely selfish. Um, yes, he's quick to judgment, but he really doesn't care. He's got a lot of bluster, but he really there's nothing behind it. And in the end. He's irrelevant, right? In the end, he's like, "Whatever, I changed my." And they're like, "Why? Why? Why did you change your vote?" And he's like, "I don't have to explain myself." And he's like, uh, you know, "I just don't think he's guilty. Yeah. That's all." Yeah, hey. yeah. What? A I creep. mean, I feel like I've known people like that, and people Absolutely. like some of the other jurors. And I think that's yes. one of the reasons that I reacted to sort of the twelve white guy thing as much. It's not a political thing for me as much as it is. Oh God, I feel like I've known several of those people who could have been in that conversation mm-hmm. and just felt really uncomfortable and really like I'm I'm no Henry Fonda could I have talked them out of that <laughs> I don't think I could have yeah I wish that, I wish though that um those three the last three holdouts weren't so obviously evil like that they had some complexity to them or even that you had somebody that you liked that was holding out because it just kind of stacks the deck uh, uh, everybody who's who who's a who's a holdout at the end is a, is a real jerk and no, well, no, no, no. E.J. Marshall isn't. E.J. Marshall is. Was there three though? There was. Uh, he's not the last uh, to crumble, though. Right? Yeah, the, no, the, the worst of the worst are there at the end. Jack, 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 Jack Warden crumbles very early. Once, once the momentum shifts towards not guilty, he is on the side of the acquittal. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he's so, pretty yeah, weak. It's Ed Begley yeah. and Lee, Lee J. J. Cobb and Ed Begley, and their mustache yeah. tw- twirling in a way that. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, Randy, I, yeah, I think you gotta you gotta hang it on E.G. Marshall, and I would say Mar- Martin Balsam too, uh, which, like I said, is a it, it's a very relatively quiet moment. He just changes his vote, but you can you can see him thinking about it. But he 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 doesn't necessarily do a lot of speeches about it. He just changes his vote. But E.G. Marshall gives that speech, and it's it it, yeah. it is that moment where it's like the people with reason have now reasoned it out. But the, the there are also some people who can't be reasoned with, and and you're right, they're awful people. They're just like Ed Begley and and takes who don't the cake. operate from the point of view of reason. And I'm, it's not to obfuscate what they do, but I think there are people who can be reasoned with because reason is a part of their makeup, and they're people whether it's emotion or whether it's just baseline self awareness of the, the way they've lived their life. You're not going to get to them with reason. You're going to get to them either with an emotional appeal or by wearing them down or something like that. And I think you see that. And I think if you had had, I mean, and again, like if you had a more diverse cast, you might have seen more shades of that because you do have people who are generally speaking from the same sort of class and culture and and the likes. But you do see to the extent that I think is possible in 1957, you do see those shadings where you see like an E.G. Marshall and a Robert Bronson, even the way Lee Lee J. Cobb comes around which I just think is an amazing thing. I think I think Lee J. Cobb and E.J. Marshall are probably my two favorite performances in the whole thing. Hmm. Yeah, the, the thing, the, the particular part that I liked was uh, after uh, Jack Warden changes his mind and has absolutely no reason to change his mind other than he feels like it, is him being berated uh, by George Voskovich uh, and I think that's an excellent speech. And it, and what's also good about it, it you, you know, you see the disdain, and we feel the disdain that George has for him, and it has no effect on Jack Warden whatsoever. It has no, no effect on that character whatsoever. It would, and it never can because 
as Shelley was saying, he's just one of these people that it's not, nothing's going to work. That, whether it's an appeal to reason or even an appeal to emotion or appeal to patriotism or whatever, it's, he is what he is and, and that's it. And that's yeah. realistic. It's, it's frustrating because we, I think we like to have depth to our characters. Um, but I think a lot of people don't have any depth in real life. Hmm. And, and it's not entirely wrong to put those kind of people in movies because we all see them. Yeah. Or they're put in situations where they don't know how to respond because those, the, the, the negative, what we perceive as negative or racist or, or in uninformed responses are responses that have come from the way those guys' lives have been led, whether it's the way they've interacted with their family or the way their dads treat them. It's not to excuse their behavior by any means, but it's to say their responses and where they come, how they get to that jury room are probably just as inbred as how Fonda, who, you know, for whatever reason, has an inquiring mind, has gotten to that jury room. And so, yeah, that's super interesting. And we should see them in movies. And unfortunately, it means that some of them are going to be a little more mustache twirling than we might like. And it's a hard line to draw. And that goes back to the writing of it. Because think about what you have to do. You have to turn 11 people and you have to create individual stories for those 11 people that don't feel like, okay, now we're going to stop and we're going to talk to Jack Warden for a while. Right. And then we're going to talk to Mar- Martin Balsam. And and I think the writing is done in such a way that you don't really feel, because there, there are plenty of war movies where it's this good, like there's, here's 12 guys and nine of them are going to die. And before they die, we're going to tell their story and we're going to break your heart and then we're going to kill them. And there's going to be three guys that are going to be left. And it's it's so hard to take a large cast like that and actually create a story that is bigger than the individual people that you're trying to talk about. That is an excellent point that I hadn't really thought of before is how skillfully the movie avoids picking, even though they've changed their votes in ones and twos, the movie does not tr- go one, two, th- okay, check off. This right. one, did it, did it, did it. We don't go through them that way. They're all interplaying throughout this process as the vote changes. Maybe it's just me, but I talking about Jack Warden versus the Lee J. Cobbs and Ed Begley's like those people exist. But I think I think there are more people like Jack Warden who just don't care and have no levels and will just go along with whatever. And that's also bad. But like, I think there are more people like that. What happens is the Ed Begley's of the world use those people. <laughs> right. They just it's easy. 100%. To get those yeah. them on their side, I think, and that's one of the great yeah. things about the dynamic of the way that they've structured the the twelve people here, the the way that uh, that Reginald Rose, we should say, the the writer of this, uh, has structured the whole thing, and and I can give him a hard time for the oh my son like download that Lee J Cobb does, but all in all, it's a remarkably artful way of getting to know these characters without you know without flashbacks and you know like they they managed to get you in the heads of these characters uh and see them play off of each other and like i said i knew this only from reputation and then watching it was a treat because it really is that good at doing all of that i like the ending of the movie where they're the the the, the sort of goes back to something jason was saying earlier where where instead of walking out all right justice team what do we conquer next they they um go their 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 separate ways i think that's a that's a nice way to end the movie 
That's a jury yeah, dynamic too, right? Friends. Like the juries yeah. don't juries don't end up forming ba- you know softball. It's not going to be a and... reunion movie. <laughs> no. <laughs> Twelve Angry Men two. Who should we acquit this time? Twelve Angry Men go to college. Twelve, <laughs> 12 <laughs> Angry Men go to Japan. Sons of Twelve Angry Men. Thirteen <laughs> Angry Men. Come yeah. On Oh, Come on, and now. a lady and a baby <laughs> <laughs> and a little lady. <laughs> oh. Yep, eleven angry men in a funeral. <laughs> now, how about like uh, twelve angry men in first class? And Henry Fonda's like, "Look, I know we're stuck on the tarmac, but you can't get too angry about this." <laughs> like, Zero. Shut up, shut up you. It's coming up in two years. Yeah. I do think that it's, you know, it's good that Jack Klugman knew about knives and how you use a knife. And that's clearly that's how he became a medical Quince, examiner. Quincy M.E., yeah, absolutely. <laughs> See, he had a career ahead of him. He was one of the younger ones, even though he's like yeah. 35 in the movie. But whatever. Sam, it looks like a man was struck by a switchblade. It was murder. <laughs> That's my Quincy bit. I do think it was weird. So when they when they were doing, I forget what part they were doing. But anyway, they're ha- they're actually getting louder than usual. And maybe it was when the when uh, they were was it when they were pretending to or they were about to stab Henry Fonda, whatever it was, <laughs> the bailiff wanders in. And, you know, there's you know pandemonium is very loud. Oh, anything wrong in here? What are you doing out there? Yeah. He's the worst worst bailiff. They're just looking at the bailiffs are looking at each other like, should we go in there? No, 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 we should. No, we really need to go in. There. No, somebody <laughs> may somebody may be pushed angry. out a window. I All like this. Of them yeah. are angry. I, mean, I wanted to put in a shout out for the uh, for the fan on the wall. Again, oh, yeah. it's, Chekhov's, it's Chekhov's fan, right? It doesn't work. Fan. Oh, it doesn't work. And then they get it working again. I just I love that detail where it's like, oh, oh, we got because they're getting sweaty and it's the thunderstorms coming down and all and uh, the the sound. I just it it just added another little bit of of detail to it. I thought that was really great. They get it working and you're like, oh, well, it's, it's a little victory. It's perfect design because the only way the fan works is if the lights are on. Mm-hmm. So the only way you can get the fan to work is if you have intense heat coming down uh, on people. So, you know, it's a self-correcting thing. Fantastic. I guess. All right. Well, um, we watched two movies about from 1957 about the law. I enjoyed them both. I enjoyed them both for different reasons. Uh, Twelve Angry Men as a stagey, writerly, but uh, quite a quite a almost like a drama exercise of like a very impressive, how do you get these characters and deal with these themes? And it's just very impressive. There's a reason that it it has resonated. And the other one, like I said, a fun episode of a TV show that never actually existed. See, I, I find witness for the prosecution much uh, stagier and um, therefore the lesser movie, but I do, do love me some Charles Lawton being, being yep. a bad boy, being the original legal bad boy. That's, that's him. Yeah. That's him. It's not Coco in there. It, that's not Coco. That was uh, season two, episode four. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let us wrap up Old Movie Club then. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot um, because I'd never seen these movies before. And I've, lear- I've learned uh, things about these actors who have been dead for years, that, uh, except for the, the high rollers lady who's still alive. 
For now. Miss Rudalee. Miss Rudalee. Exactly. For now. Right. For now. If Let you me could thank... leave my name off this podcast, it will probably keep her alive a couple more years. Sorry, yeah. Michelle, Michelle, the, police, the, the police car is downstairs and they're already coming up. The chief inspector is going to be yep. in the office. I hope the 12 men who hold your fate in their hands are, not, are, are less angry. About yeah. Me things. too. Indeed. Oh, Marlana mm. Dietrich is here to testify for you or against you. <laughs> oh, no, mm. no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, let me thank my panelists. Shelly Brisbane, thank you so much for being here as the the one not angry woman on this panel. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I try not to be angry unless my husband is helping me get away with murder or I'm helping. Mm. Ki- I don't, I don't That's think it's your secret. You're always anymore. angry. Right. Yes. That's, That's right. A more modern movie. <laughs> Dr. Drang, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure. I will now take my lift back down the stairs. Mm, enjoy that. It looks like fun. <laughs> Randy Detinga, thank you for being on the mothership for the first time and uh, regaling us with amazing stories of old Hollywood, some of which were cut from the episode. Some of which were true. <laughs> Watch your back, Rudalee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Watch Damn it, it. Randy. <laughs> and Philip Michaels, thank you for selecting these movies. Uh, I don't, appreciate don't it. Don't you want to give me a kiss, Ducky? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, more more cocoa for everyone. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of Old Movie Club on the Incomparable, and we will see you next time.